Everyone, uh, my name is Randy Bell. I'm the Director of Business Strategies at the Global Energy Center. I'm playing the role of Ambassador Morningstar today, uh, our uh, founding director and chairman. He is traveling, uh, and he wishes he could be here, but uh, he says hello, and he's actually on vacation in Europe, and is having more fun than we are. I talked to him 10 minutes ago, so I can confirm that. Um, we're we're uh, very pleased to welcome you all here uh, for a conversation about uh, Dr. Robert Eichord's new report on the critical role of China in post-Paris implementation. Uh, and this is the latest in a series of reports uh, we're working on, on transforming the power sector in developing countries. Uh, we have copies of the report um, outside, I believe. Is that correct, Greg? And do we have the first report as well? It would be great to grab the, let's grab the first report as well. Um, that's sort of the framework report, uh, which if you haven't read is very, very interesting. Um, this is a really crucial topic. Um, it's in the news a lot right now uh, because we're in the critical implementation, first part of the implementation stages of the Paris Agreement. And China has just today even reaffirmed its commitment to Paris, uh, uh, which is particularly interesting given the US context. Uh, and that might actually, we'll talk about this I'm sure later, but help with the US uh, commitment to Paris as well. Um, so we have, uh, we have some great panelists here today and I'm going to introduce you to them now uh, and they'll get started. Um, I just want to remind you that this is all on the record and is live streaming. So uh, the camera back there is uh, going directly to the internet. Uh, don't say anything you'd be embarrassed by. Um, so I'd like to welcome our panelists. Uh, first, we have uh, Jonathan Elkind, former Assistant Secretary for International Affairs at the U.S. Department of Energy. Prior to joining the Department of Energy, he worked as a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, where he focused on energy security and foreign policy. He's also served on the National Security Council and the National and was the uh, and National Security Affairs staff of the Vice President in the Clinton administration. We have Clara Gillespie, Senior Director of Trade, Economic and Energy Affairs at the National Bureau of Asian Research, where she leads the Energy Security Program and the Pacific Energy Summit. She has substantial experience in Sino-US energy security issues, which have included working for the American Chamber of Commerce in the People's Republic of China. Uh, we have Bob Eichord, who is currently a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council, uh, the Global Energy Center, and he's CEO, CEO of Eichord Ventures, LLC. Uh, you should hire him. Um, he has a distinguished 40-year career in the U.S. government working on international energy security, development, and climate change issues. And then finally, we're pleased to welcome our newest non-resident senior fellow, uh, Charles Ebinger. Uh, he most recently served as the director of the Energy Security and Climate Initiative at the Brookings Institution, and he has over 30 years of experience advising the highest levels of government on various energy topics. Uh, we're so glad that he's here today, and we are so glad that he's part of the Atlantic Council family now. Um, so again, this is all on the record, and uh, over to the panelists. Please join us on stage. Well, it's the afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's my great pleasure not only to be here in my first capacity with the Atlantic Council, but to be able to moderate a panel of such distinguished individuals. And in the case of our primary speaker, Bob Eichord, it's particularly interesting because uh, for much of Bob's career, I served as a 
outside independent consultant on a number of projects where Bob was actually my boss. Uh, we won't ask him to make any comments about the quality of the work on any of those projects. But we are delighted to be here. I think the topic we have here today is, of course, one of the most vital on the international agenda. It's almost become passe to say, you know, the world succeeds or fails on climate change policies, depending on what China primarily, but secondarily India, a country that I personally have a great deal of experience, do or do not do to combat their own uh, <coughs> growing emissions of CO2 and other uh, toxic uh, elements into the atmosphere. But I think the format we'll do today is uh, I'll turn the podium over in just a minute to Bob, and he'll make some introductory remarks about his paper, and then we'll have a moderated discussion <coughs> among the panelists, but we want to make sure that we save lots of time for questions from the floor, because I know there are, are many people in the room very familiar and knowledgeable about different aspects of this issue. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Bob. Thank you very much, Charlie. It's uh, great to be here. Thank everyone <coughs> for coming today. And um, let me make a few brief comments to introduce the report. I don't want to go on too long. I want to just highlight a few things that I think might be useful for our discussion. First, I want to thank Ambassador Morningstar and the Global Energy Center for uh, supporting this project that I've embarked on in my retirement uh, from State Department um, and to my colleagues today for uh, joining me on the panel to discuss this very important uh, topic. You know, since I left State uh, about a year ago, um, I, I focused on the issues related to implementation of the Paris Agreement, which was truly historic. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I'm focusing on the developing countries because even though I'm biased having worked with aid and development issues for so many years, I, I feel that um, it's really critical to keep our eye on what's happening in those regions from a foreign policy, from a global economic and environmental standpoint. Um, you know, the IEA projects that 90% of future electricity growth is going to be in the non-OECD in the mm -hmm. developing countries now into 2040. I mean, those are the, these are the markets of the future and the choices <coughs> that those countries make with regards to their energy mix are going to have fundamental importance to our mm. global economy and environment. Um, and so I think in the report, in this, uh, my first report laid out a framework for various actors in terms of how to address the power sector transformation issue. And the power sector is not the only sector, but it's one of the fastest growing, if not most fast growing sector. It's going to be critical to the industrial and modernization process in these countries. Um, and uh, obviously we've seen how important it is in stability issues such as in Iraq and places like that. Um, <clears throat> and so I think that um, now I'm moving on to apply this framework to key countries, and I decided, I think, with some trepidation to take on China <laughs> as the first countries <laughs> to apply it to. Um, but cl clearly Asia is critical, because mm -hmm. of, uh, of that growth in the future, probably two-thirds two is going to be in Asia, with China being a third or so. So it's really uh, obviously going to be a determining factor with regards to global emissions and uh, energy market development. Uh, and so my basic premise is that the power sector's transformation process 
is a highly political process, and governments face really difficult decisions, uh, political and economic, as well as environmental, in terms of moving toward cleaner, more efficient power systems. So the China report, I mean, there's a lot of work that's been done on China. And not a, I'm not an expert on China. I've worked with China, but I'm not an expert, a scholar on China. You studied in, in Beijing, so Clara will correct me here. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, you know, China's obviously superlatives, right? Second largest economy, largest power system, largest emitter, largest coal producer, largest oil importer, largest you get the picture, largest increment in 2015 of global energy demand. So obviously, it's the, clearly the elephant. This report is a very modest effort um, to synthesize some of the material that's work that's been done. Um, and it's oriented toward policy suggestions or reinforcing certain elements of the Chinese policy framework. I have not tackled the issue of U.S. policy toward China in this paper other than to say, listen, there are many reasons, forget climate, why we should engage with China in this sector, and I hope we can come back to that. So let me, there are four things that I want to highlight. There are many things in the report that I'd like to talk about, but uh, for now, let me focus on, on four. The first relates to energy demand and the changing structure of the Chinese economy. Yeah. I mean, clearly we've seen this process beginning, uh, how fast and, and what the implications are, but services are increasing as a part of the GDP. Um, you know, it's very energy-intensive economy and, and, uh, um, and dominates electricity and, and heavy industry and secondary industry dominate energy consumption. But, you know, it's shifting. Urbanization is also an important driver with projections of, of moving from 50 to 70 percent urban, urban uh, by 2040 at least. Um, you know, build, become, <clears throat> buildings become really important in this regards. Um, demand is very um, uncertain, but it's going to grow. Um, you know, 2015, because of the slowdown in industry, the reported statistics were that electricity growth only grew 0.5% with GDP of 6.7%. That makes sense to me, but, you know. So they corrected the numbers this year. So now they're, they're saying this year it was 6 point, I mean 5% electricity growth. So 5% is a lot of, <coughs> lot of demand. And even their projections are not that the, gr that the growth is going to be less than that in the future, but let's say at least 4%. Okay, so energy efficiency and the demand side become very important in terms of how this plays out. Second, of course, is environmental crisis. And obviously, we've read how serious that is throughout the country. Um, and I think that politically, there's a real, the leadership, and we've seen it in our discussions with NEA and NDRC over the last couple, in the last five years, is they really have increased their focus on environmental issues. And it's, I think, real political imperative to address the environmental question. Um, you know, part of it, and John, you'll remember this from Eastern Europe and our work in Poland and Katowice, et cetera. I mean, a lot of it is the low emissions. The use of coal in inefficient, polluting boilers in the cities. 
Um, and that's a big problem. We were working on with DOE on that at, at, uh, when I left. Um, and I think that that, um, you know, substitution of gas is one of the key uh, approaches to dealing with that, just like the poles did. Um, uh, they're doing it in power plants, they're doing it in small boilers. They've got a work plan that's sort of aiming at four or five million people this year to substitute for low coal. So, I mean, I think there's also obviously broader policy issues related to emissions trading, and we'll come back to that. I, I take the step in the, in the paper of advocating that they really should look at the carbon tax approach. Um, you know, and there's some voices that are saying that. Um, um, and the IMF has uh, obviously done analysis on the uh, effectiveness of um, a carbon tax. Third, quickly, um, surplus capacity. They got to deal with the surplus capacity issue from an economic and political side. Uh, you know, that has increased as a result of the slowdown and the transition policies, the increasing of the non-coal, uh, but you've got capacity utilization in the power sector of 50% in 2015 and, and it projected even lower in 2016. Yeah. So huge excess capacity. We've all seen the plans to, to uh, you know, in terms of reduction of coal, coal mine, the closure of old coal mines, but also the opening of new coal mines and expansion in the western areas, which raises the question of basically just <laughs> shifting pollution to the west. Um, and, um, and so they're looking, obviously NEA and NDFC are, are issuing these direction, directive to the provinces to halt plants, to delay plants, to retire plants, you know. But there's tension in that relationship. And I think that that's going to be interesting to see. I mean, I look at this, and I, I recently re-saw uh, re the movie Unstoppable. With Denzel Washington. I don't know if you, <laughs> you remember that movie. It's about where he's trying to stop this runaway train <clears throat> before it gets to the bend in Scanton. <laughs> and I sort of think, okay, here's this massive system used to adding all this coal capacity. And, you know, in between, 19, between 2010 and 2016, China added 679 gigawatts of power. Mm. The U.S. installed capacity is 1,000 1, gigawatts. Five years, six years. Incredible. So you've got this whole system, and you've got now tremendous in surplus engineering and, and, and uh, capacity, uh, et cetera. Um, and coal was still the largest increment last year, even though even though renewables, including uh, especially solar, outdid uh, hydro in terms of the new additions last year. So, but this whole <clears throat> issue has to be addressed with because it, it's, it's holding up the reforms, it's holding up the, the, um, um, the rationalization of the system. Um, fine, fine point is the surplus of, uh, is also, I think, driving more, uh, it has, has been a factor driving the, um, an overseas policy. You know, we started with the Go Global policy in, 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 20, in 1999, and then now the Belt Road Initiative and, and the Asian Infrastructure Bank and all these efforts, and the increased capitalization of the policy banks, the Export-Import Bank and the China Development Bank, 
And they're financing billions of dollars of projects. And you know, coal, yes, in Asia, but also nuclear and hydro and renewables, et cetera. So I mean, they're actually, I think now, and Dion, you're here, but the World Bank, I mean, it's even dwarfing the World Bank's financing in some of these areas now uh, in terms of, uh, of their things. So I think the, these are only some of the issues, uh, but uh, I, hopefully that will help stimulate some discussion and give you a sense as to some of the issues I've addressed in the report. So thanks, Dar. Thank you, Bob. Very strong summary and a timely summary as well. Thank you. As I was rereading your first report for the Atlantic Council, and as one who has worked with you closely in a lot of these countries on restructuring of power sectors, I couldn't help but think, it all sounds great. You know, we all know what we've advised people to do around the world, unbundle your generation, transmission, distribution, establish independent regulation, try to get cost-reflective tariffs, uh, which seldom seems to work, and the whole hodgepodge of things that I think is the best elucidated uh, paper that I've seen really reviewing what we tried to do in all these countries, including in, in China. But as I sat back and thought about my own experience in these countries, I'm not sure any of that, for the most part, has worked. I think too often, with all due respect to people here in the development community from the bank or elsewhere, I think too often if we could get a presidential decree or even a law that says we now have an independent regulator, that box was checked mm. without any thought about what it really means to establish a body of case law, uh, a situation where people have reasonable expectations that precedents uh, by earlier decisions by regulators will be honored down the road. And I couldn't help, and I think the biggest problem why a lot of these things never are implemented, in addition obviously to political will and some real social uh, blockages uh, in terms of throwing thousands of people out of work, is the lack of human and institutional capacity. Mm. And when I, when I read your China paper, <clears throat> I feel somewhat the same way. <clears throat> I mean, we know that there are bitter disputes uh, between the central government in Beijing and the planning authorities, often with regional or local planning authorities. To the extent, at least as I read it, and I'm certainly not a China energy expert by any stretch of the imagination, but as I read it, um, uh, it's not clear to me that the central government has enough control. And with growing uh, concerns about pollution in the big cities, I know my China colleagues, while I was at Brookings, believe very strongly that pollution represents the greatest threat to the stability of the Communist Party more than any other threat. Obviously, other China experts may agree or, or disagree with that statement. So I just caution as we, as we go through your checklist of things China needs to do, that some of these things that we know uh, may have been done on paper in other countries uh, still really aren't reality. And I think, for example, you know, when we started reforms in Pakistan, when we started reforms in India, you know, they're still arguing about these things from the, the 80s and the 90s. Right. You know, we're talking about 25 years plus that in many cases little or nothing has happened. And to expect <clears throat> that China <clears throat> will be across the board any more significant in this uh, in terms of the timetable. 
uh, that somehow they'll be able to jumpstart and have great regulation and cost-reflective tariffs in a few years because, of course, uh, cost-reflective tariffs are one of the major things that will bring down energy consumption and reduce CO2. I think we just have to be a little guarded. But let me throw out a couple questions for the panel to get us going. Mm. I'm sorry I went on too long on that spiel. Um, I guess the, I know you say it's not part of your, your paper, and fair enough. But I guess what does all this mean for US energy policy, particularly uh, as we see a number of companies talking about making major inroads into the energy efficiency market mm. in China. But we've got a president of the United States that says, you know, we don't want those jobs to go over to China. We don't want those technologies to go to China. We want to build them here. So how do we start, stop falling off a cliff uh, in that fundamental debate about what energy efficient industries and other energy industries uh, can go to China without incurring the wrath of the White House? Any of you want to? Well, I'll take a. Uh, <laughs> I'll offer the first uh, uh, darned if I know uh, response. Um, it does seem to me, Charlie, that uh, uh, that the the current moment, uh, which is so full of different um, energy-focused uh, U.S.-China uh, points, um, really is one in which uh, I think that there is a, 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 a strong question as to whether some of the established um, points of leadership um, are going to continue. Mm. Whether one is talking about clean energy and climate, uh, which um, uh, according to most of the world remains uh, a, a, a huge set of priorities, whether one is talking about uh, trade by which one helps to address uh, those issues in clean energy and climate, uh, I think it is, uh, these, are, these <coughs> questions are very much out there. And look, yes, we're meeting uh, today, in the, the, same, the very same week that President Trump announced uh, his intention to withdraw from the clean power plan, to remove the social cost of carbon, at least in the form that it was uh, uh, applied by the administration that I was working for, to restore coal, um, uh, as he has said, although uh, um, lots of questions have been raised in the industry as to whether um, uh, self-interested companies that want to profit maximize uh, will go in that direction, given the low cost of highly competitive uh, domestically produced natural gas and uh, wind and solar uh, that are that last year outcompeted every other new source of generation in the United States. Um, uh, so there there are lots of questions here. What's not uh, ambiguous is that. Uh, our Chinese friends clearly see um, a, a moment of opportunity. Mm. And President Xi Jinping's reaffirmation of China's intent to uh, comply with its uh, nationally determined uh, contribution from uh, the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, the statement then uh, yesterday by the visiting uh, European Union Commissioner on Energy and Climate <laughs> Action, uh, Miguel Arias Cañete, that the EU and China together are ready to lead on climate. I think this is uh, this kind of draws out uh, the fact that uh, we may uh, be marching uh, in a direction that is counter to where uh, the job growth is actually happening globally, mm -hmm. namely in the clean energy space. 
we may be marching in a direction that is uh, counter to where many of our global competitors and partners are, are going. Uh, and so this raises some real uh, difficult uh, questions uh, that we're going to have to deal with um, as a nation. Um, you know, China is positioning itself to capture a huge share uh, of what the IEA uh, pro projects will be a $60 trillion market uh, in aggregate by 2040, uh, and that's in the clean energy uh, and efficiency uh, space. So I think we have to take very seriously that we've got uh, a pretty seminal moment right now uh, uh, for where we go. Now, I, I, that's a, a, a long-winded way of responding to your question, Charlie, but I, I want to highlight one further piece, which I think is, uh, comes out in Bob's report and is very, very important, um, uh, both in terms of what China wishes to do for its own uh, domestic priority purposes for its own self-interested uh, reasons, but that also applies to all of what we uh, might discuss as we try to figure out China's trajectory uh, in relation to energy. Uh, and that is the need for better data uh, published on a regular basis, broadly available, timely and accurate data about the energy sector. Uh, it is a fundamental need uh, in the case of China um, uh, Bob uh, mentioned the scale of the achievements, and they are mm. huge, that China um, uh, has realized in the last uh, years, and its scale of ambition in terms of growth of its clean energy economy going forward is no less uh, considerable. But in order for Chinese policymakers <coughs> and market participants uh, be they domestic market participants or foreign market participants, in order for any of those people to know whether those objectives are being reached, where the fastest, where the slowest, where opportunities may lie, where vulnerabilities lie for the, for the decision makers in China, there needs to be a much uh, improved, much increased focus on the availability, accuracy, and timeliness of Chinese energy data. Claire, do you want to add anything? I would completely agree with everything that John ad, or said, and maybe to add to that as well, for the U.S.-China bilateral relationship, we've often struggled with issues of distrust or mistrust, with trying to figure out where there are these stories of trade that has mutual benefits, of thinking about our own domestic aims first, even before we think about where we can build together, and then also issues such as IP theft. And there's a powerful existing story to highlight on the way that the United States and China have worked together on energy cooperation that can support those dual goals of economic growth, as well as transitions to more sustainable energy futures. You know, one that comes immediately to mind is the Clean Energy Research Center, where the United States have worked together uh, quite robustly through universities, through government <coughs> partnerships, found ways to collaborate on new technologies, on the establishment of greater standards for energy efficiency. Um, We've talked about if there are opportunities for us to do more on natural gas, and I think that should be a very positive story for the Trump administration, one area that's worth uh, looking at in terms of trade. And then also I'm reminded that the IEA, re uh, when they released their most recent coal market outlook report, they had almost kind of a, a footnote level comment in the press release. Um, the big thing that got attention was kind of this flat outlook for the market. But the footnote almost said, you know, 
EPS, when we talk about Paris Climate Accord commitments, the one area we're really falling short where we haven't seen that global leadership is on clean coal technology. We really need to see more momentum there, more investment, more R&D. Um, I think that should be a positive story for both countries. That's by no means an easy topic. CCS, other clean coal technologies have struggled significantly. Number one reason we often say cleaner coal rather than clean coal. Um, but I think it is an interesting area where we might explore cooperation and not necessarily move away from some of our commitments. Bob, one of the, one of the things that bothers me is we look at some of the Chinese uh, goals, and they're very ambitious, as you're all saying, but particularly in energy efficiency and that, uh, what is it, 2020 or 2022, we're supposed to more or less see peak, uh, peak demand. Uh, when you look at the fact that the Chinese population is still growing, albeit much slower, but particularly when you look at the 200 plus cities of a million people or more that are planned, and there's talk of building you know, high-speed rail links and road links between these new cities as well as with the existing metropolises, uh, particularly in eastern China. I just don't understand how you can build that kind of infrastructure. And as you said, Bob, in your paper, all the commercial uh, buildings and other things associated with that kind of growth, and not with the use of steel, cement, everything that goes into building that infrastructure, not see demand continue to rise quite precipitously. Do you, do you have those concerns? Do you think the Chinese are being too ambitious? Will the Chinese meet those goals? Or do you think this is just that, a goal, and push ahead mm -hmm. and get as quick uh, or as close to those goals as we can, but if they have to be abandoned down the road, they will be? Well, I don't have a crystal ball, but on the <laughs> other hand, I, I have seen the Chinese, when they put their mind to, <laughs> to something, that they, they can mobilize a lot of, uh, a lot of effort. Um, but you're right, in the sense that it, you know, I mean, income, it's still, you know, what, uh, <coughs> per capita income is still 11,000, 11, right? PPP. So you, you've got tremendous, and, and, and this is sort of the dilemma, I think, that the country faces. It's a historic sort of tension between the, the imperative on economic growth and improving prosperity on one hand and maintaining control in this big, diverse country uh, on the other hand. Um, and, and so I think that there's a lot that they're trying to do in terms of directives. But I think that what your point is, I think the municipal and the provincial is really critical and, and I was just saying, I, I just, I don't know how many of you saw the, the sort of the advertisement on, uh, on Xinjiang, uh, you know, moving from sunset industries to new innovative mm. hubs of development. So there's a lot going on at the local level to try to develop this new uh, economy. And it's, hopefully it will be a more efficient economy mm. and bring in new technologies and there's a lot, I think, to some extent, there's more attention on energy efficiency in China than there is in a lot of countries. Uh, and that's, that's very positive. But on the other hand, and, and as I said, uh, you know, companies like Johnson Controls, who we work with, are opening up new offices to try to tap that market. GE just signed a new big agreement for a gas power uh, uh, conversion of a coal plant to, to gas. So I mean, I think you know, you're going to have this demand growth 
I'm not sure. The numbers are, are questionable, but let's say if you, have, if you have five to six, at least five to six GDP growth, you're going to have increases in energy demand. Three, three four, five percent are not unrealistic over the next 20 years. Charlie, I wonder John. if I could come in on that. I sure. mean, the, I, I think that there's a key uh, word that Bob used there, which is the tension between different um, uh, policy objectives. And, and I do think that it's hard to foresee that further level of infrastructure build um, without an exacerbation or, or a uh, sustained, uh, uh, sustaining of the uh, urban air quality problems unless you see some really uh, uh, considerable gains uh, in terms of industrial energy efficiency. Mm. And that is very much in, in the crosshairs of what um, uh, our Chinese counterparts, when I was in government service, uh, indicated that they're interested to be focusing on. Mm. So um, I, I, again, the, I think that the emphasis that uh, Bob gave in his opening remarks and in the report to the political salience of uh, the environmental quality threats, the air quality mm -hmm. threats, uh, and water quality, frankly, uh, across China, but especially in the big cities, I think that that is right. And I think that's mm -hmm. going to drive, in part, some of the uh, efficiency gains that mm -hmm. um, I think many uh, energy people in China and elsewhere uh, would wish for them to, to be able to achieve. So one other, one other point that came out uh, uh, recently, I think, which we're seeing in other developing countries too, is as they modernize, as they urbanize, is that you've got this strong demand, that's certainly in m yeah. many areas of China, for uh, air conditioning. And the, so the peak load on this power system from, that, from the buildings and all the air conditioning, et cetera, is a big factor. In, in peak load increased 19% last August when it was hot. And it's, you know, and so you need a you also need a different kind of power system there to deal with that, and that's why I think, you know, I've been supportive of not only the the transition to, to renewables, but also the the role that gas can play yeah. in providing more flexibility and meeting those huge peaks, uh, uh, the growing peaks that are occurring in the power system. On the on the subject of natural gas, since you raised it, um, how do you feel? Uh, what do you think the Chinese authorities feel on the trade-off between more LNG imports, uh, more pipeline mm -hmm. imports, including, of course, some huge deals, some underway, some still talked about, with Russia mm -hmm. and some of the other neighbors? Uh, uh, do you think they'll try to uh, push on all fronts more LNG and more pipeline gas, as well as, of course, coal bed methane and other alternatives? From what I've seen, they'll definitely push on all fronts, but relative to what I would have expected maybe five, six years ago, there's less of a priority emphasis on pipelines and more expectation that LNG will play an increasingly significant role. And that has to do with fundamentally how the market has changed in that time in terms of suppliers you have coming online, not just from Russia, but from Australia. United States and Canada as well, and the sense that if what was driving China's natural gas priority goals before was this concern about import dependence or over-reliance or the geopolitics of gas, um, there's much less immediate pressure or concern there. I know there was a lot of interest early on, of course, uh, that China could be a huge export market for the United States 
for LNG. But it seems as if uh, with the changes in the LNG market, you find more and more LNG producers in the United States really saying that Europe mm. will be the primary market for U.S. exports. Uh, I was wondering if you have any feeling about that. Uh, I, th I think, obviously, it's, it's exciting to see what's happening in the, <laughs> in the gas world internationally. Um, uh, you know, there was just an announcement the other day that the Chinese and Japanese and Koreans that account for 50% of the LNG trade are going to work together to try to get more flexible contracts in, uh, in a market that they perceive have where they have some leverage given the supplies that are anticipated to be on the market. Um, you know, but I, I think, and it is clear that at least in the near term, there has been an increase mm. in the in the price spot prices in, in Asia, uh, which which had dropped to a right, level right. that made it mm -hmm. not as right. attractive for Chenier and others to to market in that, those areas. Um, uh, so I think the last I looked at Japan was nine or ten dollars or something like that. So you know, if it, and depending on what happens here with gas prices, that's not an unreasonable spread in terms of being able mm -hmm. to, to look more toward the Asia market. But you have other competition in the Asia market too, and 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 so how this market framework develops in terms of Singapore as a hub or or others in terms of uh, and how much the companies want to move towards spot, uh, spot purchases as opposed to long-term contracts um, is, is an interesting question. I mean, I think that what you've seen in China and what people are worried about is to some extent that demand hasn't grown as quickly as anticipated. Uh, and yet you have all this, these efforts, one, to increase pipeline capacity to 100 BCM by 2020, You've had, uh, you know, 11 LNG terminals <laughs> built um, and six more under construction. So you've got a tremendous effort to try to develop that as a source. It's still embryonic and it still, to some extent, looks like it'll be focused on coastal cities mm -hmm. where you can get develop the imports and the infrastructure to, to substitute for, for the the, the plants and, and, and the industries in that area, and as I said, the heating systems. Um, and so I think there's, so that policy and the pricing aspects of that have been very important in influencing. First, they had higher prices to try to encourage upstream development. Then they had lower prices to try to encourage consumption. Uh, you know, so, um, but it, I think gas right now is a small player. Very small. And I think, uh, you know, they want to increase it to 10% um, from four or five now. So, and, and so I think that, um, but there's certainly going to be the import capacity. Mm -hmm. How much they want to become dependent upon imports and how much, I mean, I didn't deal at all with the upstream issues and others may, may, may want to comment on that, but because obviously they have gas resources, but there are a lot of constraints and companies have found that it's been very difficult to try to enter into agreements to develop the shale capacity or other capacity in China. And, and, uh, and so I think that, that remains a big, big question, but it's a very important question because I, I happen to think that in the diversification strategy, Gas has a critical role, and if and it can lead to a faster 
reduction of emissions than other if you only went with the non-fossil right. options <coughs> alone given those, some, of those, uh, some of those constraints that uh, operate on, 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 these, uh, on these other, other, other sources. Um, yeah, so I think, I think um, it's, it's probably, uh, and, and it's an area, I mean, I often sort of visualize or talk about a vision where saying, okay, US, Canada, Mexico, if we could only work together and, and work with Asia to try to look at developing a broader framework for export of, of gas mm. to Asia to try to begin to bend that coal curve, you could have a tremendous relationship of, of mutually beneficial mm. from an economic and environmental standpoint and reduce their dependence on the Middle East. Because you have to remember, Asia is primarily an importer and is becoming more and more dependent on the Middle East for oil and gas. Can I add to that? Please. Um, I mean, thinking about your comments as well, I think the IEA just came out with a statement, a report recently that said in you know, so many words, both the present and the future of LNG demand are in Asia. And this year in particular, we've started to see some US exports to Asia come online to Japan and others. But I think fully realizing that potential, and perhaps in some cases why it's discounted as well, um, raises real questions about the future of US policy and how we might shape it. Uh, US natural gas exports in particular are defined by a law that has a very complex process for both approval and permitting, and also determining when and how natural gas exports are in the US national interest, which was no easy conversation to go through a number of years is national interest about, okay, you know, the economic potential that gas could play. Is it about the environmental benefits? Is it about environmental concerns? Is it about tensions between domestic industries as well? Some who want to have cheaper gas here rather than have cheaper gas in kind of a global picture. Um, that's a question that is up for debate right now. There are certain things we can do to further accelerate the pace of exports, but really thinking about this policy in particular uh, could play a more significant role in addition to some of the infrastructure questions. And then also, I think for US industry and others, there is a question about the demand outlook. We've seen a lot of variable numbers in the region, um, seen a lot of very bold statements about goals and importance and priorities, but not necessarily always that same realization. Um, some individuals, some analysts have hoped that one or two countries might be able to drive that significant demand that makes it viable. Um, others, Leslie Palti Guzman for NBR wrote a piece saying that what we're most likely to see in this market in Asia is more this coalition of smaller suppliers that in aggregate will kind of bundle up to what would make those exports possible. But again, when you have a US policy that says you either have to be a free trade country or otherwise go through this process, um, those are questions that we need to address before we can immediately realize that potential. John, you wanted to? Yeah, I'd just like to come in with a couple of comments here. Uh, first of all, I mean, I think that the, um, it, it is important to remember the scale and the dynamism right now in global uh, natural gas markets. Uh, we're in a five-year period where we're going to see something like a 40% increase in the liquefaction capacity around the globe. And so there, it is a really good time to be a natural gas buyer and importer um, uh, for, the, for the next uh, period of time. Um, the second point, uh, I think it is important to, um, uh, 
to look at the actual experience of what has happened in terms of uh, approvals for uh, exports of LNG from the United States. Um, it, it is true that the Department of Energy, when the first questions of exports started to come along, had to contend with how do you actually implement faithfully the Natural Gas Act, which goes back to the beginning of uh, last century when LNG, you know, cryogenic uh, uh, transportation of, of super chilled uh, uh, natural gas uh, could only have seemed like science fiction out of somebody's creative mind, but is now so central in the, in the, in the gas, natural gas economy. Nonetheless, after the, uh, the, the kind of growing pains, the actual record is that uh, uh, something north of um, 12 BCFD, 120 uh, billion cubic meters per year-ish, um, uh, have been approved, and, and it could be more. I haven't looked at the record actually in the last uh, about six weeks. Um, that establishes the United States, assuming that all of the export facilities then actually are uh, completed and commissioned, that establishes the United States as um, a major natural gas exporter and a, and a part of that uh, uh, massive growth. So although there is a uh, rather curious quality to the notion of, um, uh, particularly under the current policy debates, uh, thinking about FTA versus non-FTA countries, which is the threshold that is used in the Natural <laughs> Gas Act. Uh, nonetheless, the fact is that we're going to be a big part of the supply uh, bulge that's in the, in the global markets. And, and that ought to give confidence, frankly, to natural gas users everywhere. The last comment that I'll make that takes us back to uh, the, the framing of Bob's report, namely the post-Paris implementation, is that how that natural gas gets used, uh, namely the uh, what that natural gas is an alternative to, does it back out coal burning or does it back out some other sources, renewables, if the latter, then it's a net loser for climate. If it's the former, then it's a net big winner. Um, so. We're running out of time before we go to the audience, but I would like to get into one area. Well, well two areas. Uh, one is the whole question of Chinese export policy on coal. Mm. Uh, if the Chinese, and I've heard people argue that even the One Belt, One Road uh, has big plans to help the Kazakhs get their tremendous coal resources into the world market. A lot of people don't realize that Kazakhstan, on a BTU basis, their coal reserves dwarf their oil and gas reserves. Uh, but what do you think about how China can profess to be moving vigorously towards uh, climate change positive policies at home, and yet through their new infrastructure bank and other things Bob talks about, uh, are in reality helping to build more coal plants uh, overseas. And the a final question is, what do you think, are you optimistic that the plans for nuclear power will be achieved? I mean, just this week we saw uh, Westinghouse go bankrupt, uh, Toshiba Westinghouse, and do any of you have concerns that if China does move vigorously ahead, as they're talking about, and becomes a sizable exporter themselves of nuclear reactor technology, do we have any non-proliferation concerns in the mm -hmm. sense, will China put on the same kinds of controls that the traditional vendors have? Anybody want to? Who are you tapping for those? <laughs> <laughs> Bob? You're the experts. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
you want to start, Brian? Yeah, I'll, I'll say a few words. I mean, obviously, um, the um, involvement of China in Asia, but also increasingly in Africa, IEA just recently did a very nice study on China's involvement in, in Africa, um, has focused traditionally in the power sector on hydro and on coal. Huge investments and financing for coal plants in Indonesia and, mm. and, and a lot of the equipment for India's coal developments come from China. They've just, and they're now sort of have been recently in the last couple of years, been focusing on developing uh, coal plants that will use imported coal from Indonesia, um, and Pakistan, and um, Malaysia, and Philippines, places like that. So I think one of the big questions, I mean, there was a dialogue on this issue in the, pre in the Obama administration in the context, our broader context of working with OECD and countries and other countries to try to limit support, public support for coal-fired coal plant plants. Um, and there was, this certainly was part of the dialogue with, with China and the, in, in terms of trying to phase out that support. Um, I think to some extent we have to look at how One Belt, One Road also evolves here. Uh, there is a range of projects that are being developed, including this coal project <laughs> in Pakistan, right. that to some extent um, run a little bit counter to some of the Chinese public statements, I think, that they're going to focus more on, mm -hmm. on environmentally friendly and, and cleaner options for that approach. I mean, obviously, the infrastructure aspects and the arguments they use in terms of trying to reduce the transit time of goods to Europe, et cetera, um, is an important driver of their thinking about this initiative. Um, but I, I, and clearly they have stepped up their financing for renewables around the world, in Latin America, in Africa, and in Asia. Uh, so you're seeing positive signs with regards to their involvement in that area. Uh, I think there are those, that involvement is not without its difficulties as we've seen with regards to the large hydro projects and some environmental and other concerns about their environmental and, and political implications of some of these mega projects that, they, that they're doing. Um, thinking about the question of coal, most often the narrative that I hear on Chinese policies is that China is disproportionately represented in global coal financing, um, which is undeniably true for a number of reasons. But there's this complementing narrative that almost seems to suggest it's because China is going out and selling coal or encouraging others to not do coal. And when I think about Indonesia and others, I don't know that I've seen the statement that would back the idea that if not for China, um, Indonesia would not do coal, unless we're saying potentially that Indonesia then might do more diesel, which is an even worse scenario. I mean, when I think about Indonesia in particular, it has very dramatic ambitions to increase its renewable energy portfolio. Um, significant targets for natural gas could be higher, but still requires significant commitment. And coal demand is still expected to grow exponentially. And that's just a factor of how big the gap is in terms of their current electrification right. rates. Um, now, that being said, an 
One of the reasons why China is so disproportionately represented has to do with other global policies, the United States, Japan, and others who have in recent years either curtailed or eliminated their own financing. Um, when AIB put out its most recent round of its kind of draft proposal on what its clean energy financing would look like, I think it was encouraging that they are trying to think seriously about the fact that while many countries envision coal playing a significant role in their energy mix, it should undeniably be cleaner. They've gotten a number of pushback on their rounds of what that coal financing might look like. It'll be interesting to see how that develops, if it'll be ultra supercritical, or if there'll be a certain threshold or standard that's met to be able to demonstrate, yes, China, we agree that there are some cases where the financing you provide will bring up what would otherwise be a lower environmental threshold, but really here's the threshold that you have to meet. I think that's still an open question. John, you want to take the next? I want to come back to the nuclear aspect. Mm. We need to answer quickly. Yes, quickly. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously, this ambitious nuclear program is, is interesting in the sense that it, it really is putting on plants at a very rapid rate. Um, and um, some of those have been delayed. There have been problems with regards to equipment quality, quality control. And, and there is, in a sense, certainly some statements that say the government recognizes the need to strengthen the safety regime with regards to nuclear power. There's also colleagues that I have that are concerned about the longer-term development of such a huge nuclear industry with regards to plutonium and, 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 and proliferation concerns. So I think uh, we'll have to watch that carefully. I mean, I think that um, the other thing that was came up recently was the uh, fact that there are, while there are three major groups that are involved in these plants, uh, there are new entrants that are trying to get into that nuclear business that don't have the experience. But I think internationally it is clear that they're looking at, at really ex substantial expansion of the nuclear involvement. You've seen that in Argentina. You've seen it also in, in the contracting with, uh, for uh, can-do plants in, in Argentina and in uh, and, uh, Romania, for instance, completing the Chernovoda plants. Um, and so I think it's interested in markets like South Africa and, and, and places like that where they're, they're still looking at putting in major nuclear capacity. But the cost and whether they can really, drive, through some of their indigenous design, drive down the cost because now you've got such changes in cost structure with regards to both gas and renewables that it doesn't look that attractive from a pure economic policy standpoint. I want to thank the panelists. We'll now move to the floor. May I first say, please identify yourself uh, and please ask a question and ask it succinctly. Thank you. All right, we'll start over here. And there are mics, so please wait till you get a mic. Thank you. Thank you very much. My name is Paolo von Schirach, president of the Global Policy Institute. Thank you very much for the, this uh, great overview of uh, Tour d'Horizon on what's going on in China and beyond. Uh, here's a question. Uh, the official rhetoric is uh, China, green power, America sliding back because of policy changes and, uh, you know, all the things you've already mentioned. However, the hard realities are this. We consume about, we, our uh, coal reliance for a power generation now is down to about 30%, largely thanks to fracking, which has nothing to do with climate change concerns or anything else. It's business. China reliance on coal down from 85 to what, 75 now? Is it, am I correct? 75, is that approximately? Like 
correct? Actually, the generation this year was 65. Well, but in terms of install capacity. And install capacity, right. Yeah. All right. How long is it going to take China to go down to 30 percent? 200 years? That's my real question. It's a real question. In other right. words, the rest is rhetoric. They can say whatever they want. And, and indeed, there's been huge progress in terms of new installed capacity in China in renewables, which is fantastic in absolute terms. In relative terms, modest. And, and the, the fact is, China relies on coal at the moment. That's the hard fact. They may be trending in a different way, but I would like to ask you, how long is it going to take? Why Thank don't you. we take another question here, and then you can answer them both. Alden Meyer, Union of Concerned Scientists, thanks for this. I wanted to ask about the uh, U.S.-China dynamic in this space, yeah. the strategic economic dialogue, the bilateral initiatives on technology that we built with China over the last 10 years. What are the prospects for those given the shift in administrations? And then in a multilateral space, the U.S. really took the lead in creating mission innovation, the clean energy ministerial. You know, Secretary Moniz was really driving that. China is going to be hosting the next meeting of that in June. Right. Uh, and taking leadership, and then it goes to the European Union. Is the U.S. out of that game, given the budget proposals and the initiatives of this administration? Are we ceding that leadership to China and the EU? Who wants to start? So take, the, sure. take the second. Yeah. I'll go back to the first one. But, uh, okay. Um, Alden, thank, for, thank you for the question. I, look, the, this is, again, one of the darned if I know uh, questions, just to be perfectly candid. Um, <laughs> There are abundant reasons why um, uh, the new administration, with its own set of uh, policy priorities, which um, uh, I, I certainly uh, personally think should include climate change as part of them, but if they decide to go in a different direction, that's notably their call, not mine. Nonetheless, if one's focus is job creation, economic competitiveness of the United States, uh, familiarization with markets around the globe, uh, part of this massive clean energy economy that is uh, emerging at an at a increasingly rapid pace. If one wishes to go after those kinds of objectives, many of which I think fit uh, in a way that uh, may be much more comfortable for the new administration, uh, then one would expect that uh, continuing both some of the bilateral engagements uh, on energy with, with China uh, and also continuing U.S. leadership in some of the multilateral engagements that you uh, referred to would make a heck of a lot of sense. Yes, uh, China will host on the 6th through the 8th of June the uh, 8th meeting of the Clean Energy Ministerial uh, and the second uh, Mission Innovation uh, uh, Ministerial meeting. Uh, these are, on the one hand, a uh, clean energy deployment focus for clean energy ministerial, and on the other, the mission innovation effort uh, and over the horizon uh, emphasis on the next generation of clean energy technologies. Um, the skinny budget certainly doesn't uh, hint at any uh, friendliness toward um, uh, energy R&D, or for that matter, many other forms of, of R&D. Uh, and uh, it is clear from comments that have been made by uh, uh, Republicans on Capitol Hill uh, that while they understand uh, the expression of the president's priorities as appropriators, uh, they will make the decisions uh, about what the budgets look like uh, ultimately. Uh, and I would just simply say in closing that the uh, uh, 
through Republican and Democratic administrations, through Republican-led uh, and uh, Democratic-led Congresses, going back well into the middle of the last century, uh, the United States has enhanced its economic position by continuing to support uh, the innovation economy. Uh, and it is my hope that the new administration uh, will continue with that uh, long-standing, well-established, well-justified mm -hmm. history of investments uh, in our ability to innovate uh, across this economy. Um, to your question on the time, time horizon here. Mm -hmm. um, so, as we said, demand growth will increase. Mm -hmm. um, projection is for 2020 to cap, no, for, for, for 2020 for installed capacity and increase to 2,000 gigawatts mm -hmm. from 1640 this last year. It's 350 gigawatts by 2020. I don't know. That seems a little bit high, but on the other hand, they're adding over 100 gigawatts a year. And but the good news was that this year, 60% um, or more of the new capacity was non-fossil. But they're still adding. But they're coal. adding. They're adding, coal. they're adding coal. They want to cap coal at 1,200 gigawatts. I'm sorry, 1,100 gigawatts. Okay, so there's still room to increase that coal, and as I said, there is a lot. Of, there is still new projects going on in some of the non-environmentally and non-surplus provinces in the West uh, to develop coal plants out in that region. And I think that's that's part of the issue of the dynamic growth is that they're putting a lot of emphasis to try to incre increase yeah. the ec economic growth in those areas and coal is being used because there's lots of coal out there too um, to, to, to develop. So I think, you know, while the goal is 55% uh, reduction down to 55%, the IEA, some of the projections of 2040 have them going down to 40%, you're right in the sense that it, I, I think that's why your point about not only clean coal, but also CCS and some of these other technologies in the future may have a role. They're working on them. Uh, the economics don't particularly look great at this point. Um, but uh, obviously, between now and 2030, 2040 is a long time, and there could be significant breakthroughs in that. If I could, I'd like to kind of uh, suggest that there's a connective tissue between the question that you uh, posed, Paolo, and the one that, that Alden did. Um, through the experience, the established experience that we have of working with China on energy issues, there have often been points where um, they and we didn't quite see what the other was, uh, you know, was, was arguing uh, for. This is one of those cases. How do you add up those sums and come up with uh, the kind of future that we hope for China to uh, achieve and that the Chinese leadership say that they wish to achieve? Um, I don't have a crystal ball that gets me to that answer today, but it does, I think, strongly uh, endorse, therefore, the importance of our continuing to roll up our sleeves and sit down and talk with them. These conversations between the United States and China on energy um, are at no particular time especially easy. Um, they undoubtedly find us to be a vexatious uh, uh, a bunch of people to, to deal with. There are times where we simply don't understand, uh, as, uh, as your question suggests, 
uh, how you get to the stated objectives uh, given where, what their trend lines are. That's why we need to work with each other. Uh, Charlie, going back to your question, your uh, comment about uh, reforms and right. whether you can really implement forms given the center-periphery relation. I mean, I, I think many of us will said in our discussions with the Chinese, there is indeed, despite mm -hmm. the nature of the communist system, some desire to try to open up the system to, to mm. achieve reforms. There's certainly an interest in our experience and how we have tried to develop more market-oriented systems. Mm. Um, and, and I think further to John's point, I think that that dialogue that we've had with FERC and with state and DOE on these issues is really important to try to mm. begin to to, to look at how, to, how can they really make some of these reforms work in a way that's going to open up the system. And that is, of course, facing the challenge that you have these huge state energy companies that dominate the sectors. Even though there are new entrances that are coming in from, from, different, uh, from, from private and even with some foreign capital and the op prospects, of course, of trying to expand the green bond and the financial systems to allow more international financing can help to, I think, accelerate some of the diversification mm -hmm. uh, investments that are going to be uh, uh, pursued. Yeah, maybe, I mean, going back to your original statement, almost how do we get that percentage lower than 65%, one of the things I think my colleagues have hit on is you can get it lower by, uh, lower by just increasing everything else, which is not necessarily a statement on how you actually decrease coal demand. Um, there are a wide number of ranges in China about what's actually possible in terms of that peak coal demand. And I've seen everything from, you know, it could have already happened to it's going to happen in 2035, and that level is, it's going to peak about where we're at now, or maybe it could almost even double. And that creates significant ambiguity in China's own energy planning. I mean, if we try to think about how we decrease it, one of the most helpful measures might be, well, let's look at others across the region and what really transformed their own reliance on coal. And for the United States, I mean, that was undeniably both the shale gas revolution coming on board and also these breakthroughs in the techno uh, technological costs for wind and solar of which China had a significant part. Um, it's another case for why more R&D and kind of this attention to thinking about not just what we know now, but really wanting to push on innovation. Um, to go to the mission innovation question, I would agree it's maybe too soon to tell. Um, the plan that we've seen is a presidential wish list. He might not get everything. What's clear is that he does not necessarily wish for more spending on climate or as much on R&D as we might see possible. Um, but if we think in real terms about what the US was committing to, it was quite significant. It's important. It matters in terms of global leadership and perspectives that we have skin in the game. But the numbers that we've been quoting in just terms of raw dollars, you know, China and others in some ways were already more significant on their aid budget. Um, the other reason you want the United States to be involved is not just as you know, cash. You want us to be thinking about R&D uh, for a US domestic audience 
you know, R&D in the United States does not just occur in one basement in the Department of Energy. You know, it happens in labs, in universities, in facilities across the country. It happens in people's districts. And I think that really matters as we think about how Congress might lead on thinking through, you know, what are the opportunities of some of this clean energy development for our own economic growth? Okay, let's take a couple more. Let me just say, I hope we don't give them FERC. <laughs> I think that would be the worst thing we could give the Chinese. I've got a couple. Yes, ma'am. Hi, uh, my name is E. I'm a student at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced and International Studies. Um, I am from China, and one thing I've noticed is that there's a huge wind curtailment in China, and it's very difficult for the government to figure out how to bring them online. And uh, I want to have your advice on what is the most efficient way in the state level, province level, um, government of Chinese government level, and then also on the international development level, how, what is the most efficient way in terms of solving that issue? Thank you. Well, why don't we take, you, take two? Hello, um, my name is Ruth Koo. I'm with the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Energy Resources, and Bob was my former DAS in the Energy Transformation Pillar, so it's very good to see him again. Um, I actually am the lead on this China Power Sector Cooperation that we're doing with the, um, the National Development Reform Commission. And um, I guess related also to this young lady's question, we are working on three pilots with the Chinese uh, on opening up market, uh, enhancing demand response, and increasing the local consumption of renewable energy, which is related to the wind curtailment issue. Um, it, it does involve work with the provinces. So we are, we are trying to, uh, to make progress with the Chinese on these reforms. Um, I guess one of the very interesting things is they are seeking to um, open up their market uh, in, in interesting ways. And my question to you is, what would you recommend as an initial step to their opening up that market, uh, given Given the dynamics in the current system, um, what are your thoughts along those lines? Who wants to take? Well, uh, I, since uh, I know where Ruth's coming from on this yeah. issue, so thank you, Ruth, for for asking, and thank you for continuing to try to push the envelope on the market reform uh, cooperation, because I think. Ultimately, the answer to your question is you got to create a market. <laughs> and that relates to, I mean, uh, Charlie, our issues related to unbundling, opening up distribution, <laughs> third-party access, bilateral contracts. I mean, they know all this stuff. The problem is how do you change a system that has such vested interest in incumbent generators mm -hmm. and others and, and as, as uh, the, the other young lady was saying, we, you know, the increase in curtailment has, has doubled or so in the last couple of years. So there's both a transmission issue, mm -hmm. and State Grid admits that. There's been a lack of planning for all this new generation capacity. There is the surplus capacity issue that I mentioned that has to be rationalized because otherwise you're going to continually be faced with this issue of dispatch decisions at the local level mm -hmm. and the invested generators are going to, even though they have interest in renewables as well, right. are going to resist that. They want to keep the plants open. Yeah. 
and running at max at at at, at levels that can you know maintain the uh, the health of the company. Um, I think that the what I mean what I've said there is that I think you need to have more independent uh, that's possible in China. Regional centers, I mean, we, we move toward RTOs, and you can debate whether RTOs have been successful in terms of our system. But you need some kind of um, a, a, a group at the more regional level that's really going to be able to plan and look independently at, at, the, at the regional system and how you can deploy that, those resources in a way, and that can't be dominated by the incumbent generators. So it is a market issue, as well as a technical issue with regards to, to planning and how do you integrate these intermittent sources into the, into the system. And as you know, the plans are for more and more wind and solar to come online, and the problem will be exacerbated. And the question is, will people want to invest if they can't dispatch their, 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 their systems? especially if they're getting financing. I mean, right now, we haven't really talked about the financial system. But, but the fact that the, the, the state banks have continued to issue these bonds and financing for companies, including the, quote, zombie companies and the unprofitable companies, uh, you know, to keep not only the industrial production going, but also these energy companies afloat. I mean, that's part of this equation that has to be uh, dealt with in terms of getting some some greater clamping down of the financial resources that are going to continue this train, as I was saying, <laughs> to to build new new uh, capacity. Some more questions? Yes. You get the mic, please. Thank My name's Tom Altmer. I've been with the coal industry a long time, most recently with Arch Coal. Over the years, I've been very involved with DOE's efforts on coal R&D, which really went into a hiatus for years. We have U.S.-China energy cooperation in advancing coal technology. You look at the Paris Agreement, uh, close to 30 countries' commitments included the continuing use of coal and using highly efficient new coal-fired power plants called ultra-critical and they're being built and they're being financed by China, Japan, South Korea, and others in various countries around the world. That is one aspect of it. And now the United States appears that it may now also allow companies to build new coal-fired power that are more highly efficient, emit less carbon per unit of coal produced. That's one part of the question. Do you see that trend continuing? The second part of the question is, uh, a while back there was a lot of advance on cooperation on coal gasification. And you look at China's situation, they have coal in the western region. They don't have the pipeline infrastructure to get natural gas from the east to the west. Coal gasification with carbon capture, is there a, a focus in China on a future for that technology? And does the U.S., could the U.S. play a role in making, in facilitating that? So, um, first of all, let me say that the, uh, uh, the focus on um, continuing use of coal in a way that is environment consistent with climate change object objectives 
uh, is something that the Department of Energy under Ernie Moniz uh, and Steve Chu spent a lot of time and a lot of effort and, and resources on. Uh, you alluded to the advanced coal technology work that was happening under the, as a part of the US-China Clean Energy Research Center. Um, this was, a, a, I think, a, a pretty remarkable um, opportunistic use uh, of um, capabilities that Chinese and U.S. researchers and companies, each, each of those two on, on, on both sides, could bring to the table. It was also a, a, a very clear indication uh, of what Bob alluded to before, which is that um, the price points that you can see uh, carbon capture at in the market today uh, are not sufficiently compelling. Um, but by the same token, if you look at the projections of how we get to um, uh, the kind of climate outcomes that we seek of less than two degrees uh, Celsius, it's pretty darn hard, if at all possible, to see how you do that without uh, successful, that is cost competitive, uh, carbon capture utilization and sequestration. So um, what have been the, the combinations that were so um, fortuitous? Uh, you had U.S. companies with technologies that they wanted to develop. They wanted to uh, use platforms on existing power plants in China to test them. You had some of the reverse as well. Uh, part participation not only by uh, West Virginia University, some of our major laboratories, including the National Energy Technology Laboratory, uh, where there's a great deal of the national expertise on uh, CCUS, but then also the big companies on both sides. So this is exactly an example of um, the kind of collaborations that I think are terribly important to move ahead with. And oh, by the way, one of the early um, areas of focus that we had envisioned under mission innovation, should the, the uh, new uh, administration elect to, to continue with this, was also focusing on um, some of the major scientific questions that are remaining in regard to CCUS. And that's a topic that was um, of interest uh, to the European Union and to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia alike. And so, you know, great sense of importance and priority there. Um, yes, the, the previous administration uh, did not support the use of um, uh, government dollars for, uh, to support um, uh, coal-fired uh, power plants other than A, in the least developed countries, B, uh, with carbon capture. Uh, so that did have the effect of ruling out uh, supercritical and I, I think in the end ultra-supercritical ultra. was, was uh, 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 allowed to be, to be covered. Uh, and that was a source of real frustration by a lot of folks in the coal community. I, I, I recognize that. Um, China has been, I would say, rather uh, inscrutable to me in terms of what their long-term plans are vis-a-vis -vis coal gasification. Uh, in the absence of carbon capture, you're just you know, moving the problem in a different form farther west in the country, and, and that's hard to see how that... Uh, ends up being a long-term winner. Last comment, um, one area that it has been uh, a, a place of ambiguity, um, uh, which I think might merit some uh, reconsideration, is 
for existing coal fleets, take Ukraine for example, take China for example, for existing coal fleets where there are companies that uh, from the United States or elsewhere that could come in and um, improve significantly mm -hmm. the combustion efficiency uh, of those plants, uh, to me that's kind of all win. Uh, and that might be an area where um, you know, it makes sense to, to have a look at um, whether there is um, that is an area that, that could be uh, one of support. The, the place where this has bitten in terms of the policy debates is whether in effect you are prolonging the, the lifetime in some way of those uh, uh, subcritical uh, coal plants. That's something that the, the new administration is going to have to work through and figure out in terms of priorities. I, I think that it's clear that China sees the replacement of older plants with supercritical and ultracritical units as, as part of their strategy. And so I would say as part of my overall suggestion that they really need to look at ra how they effectively rationalize and move ahead. Let's assume that they do cap it at 1,100 1 gigawatts. You know, what mix of rehabilitation of new plants, how much can you retire? They want to retire several hundred gigawatts of old inefficient capacity. And that, I mean, you know, it doesn't solve the problem, but it, it, it helps. Mm -hmm. If you can have 1,100 megawatts of, of supercritical as opposed to, to subcritical. And, and, and it also is very important, I think, in terms of the overseas, because a lot of the pot plants mm -hmm. that built in Africa and Asia are subcritical. And, and now, you know, we insisted, even though we didn't particularly support it, in Pakistan, for instance, that they develop, uh, you know, supercritical plants. It might interest people to know that India had made a staunch commitment yeah. that in the 12th plan, five-year plan coming up, that no plants, that, uh, no coal plants that weren't uh, supercritical or ultra-supercritical would be built. They just last week rolled that back. Oh, they did? Because they basically stated they cannot expand their electricity sector fast enough to meet the needs of the unserved citizens at a reasonable cost if they do that. Anyone have time for maybe one or two more questions? Please, succinct as possible, and answers as succinct as possible. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, just a quick question. Rob Colarina, I'm with an investment group. You know, the topic of these uh, international consortiums, particularly from the West, how does the topic of environmental compliance uh, work out? Because you've got, you know, maybe rules within China or in some of the other emerging countries versus some of the, the compliance matters uh, from, uh, from the West. Why don't we take the other question back, wherever that was. Hi, thanks. Uh, Daniel Melling with World Resources Institute. Um, there's a big shift in the labor market with, with um, coal miners being put out of jobs in China. Do you get a sense that the country is managing that effectively, and what are some of the political ramifications? Oh, I was going to say on the labor market question, I was particularly impressed by your comments in the paper as well, which I completely agreed with, which it is this looming challenge. I mean, we can see the numbers, we can see the trajectory for what might happen, what is possible. And if we try to go around for really good examples or good messages, too often we say, well, we can just switch this energy source for that energy source, and we make the same comments about labor markets. Um, 
you know, the people who are working in coal mining are not necessarily going into solar installation or production. Um, and I think it's still an area where we need to talk more significantly about what those mechanisms are. Is there comprehensive retraining programs? At what level does that occur? At what mechanism? A lot of people have talked about, okay, well, is it, you know, high schools or others? Uh, what is the access? I think it's still an open question that we have. I'm, gl I'm glad you raised it because uh, on the social impact issues, because I think obviously, you know, it's a, all, all politics, is politics is local. I mean, how is this going to impact the Northeast and those communities mm -hmm. where they're closing down these uh, things and, 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 and greatly reducing uh, the production from uh, the industries as well? I mean, in the early, you know, when, at the time when they announced we're going to close a thousand mines. Mm -hmm. uh, there was, in a sense, a, uh, a, a, a adoption of a policy to create a special fund to support the social adjustment process. I haven't seen so much about that in terms of how they're implementing or or how they're providing support to local yeah. communities to do that. And I, it's a really critical issue, you would think. And you see in the paper here and there, I mean, that there are labor protests in these yeah. different uh, local uh, communities. And how significant th uh, is that? I mean, John and I know from Eastern Europe that the environmental community and some of the concerns about pollution was a major factor ultimately mm -hmm. leading to the political change in those countries. Um, but I don't think we can necessarily expect that in China, but I think that uh, it is uh, clearly, um, I think, an important political issue, especially as President Xi goes into the, to the party Congress this autumn. We've got one minute for the environmental compliance yeah. question. <laughs> I, I'm not, not entirely sure that I understood your question, but I'll just take a jump in. That I, I mean, if your question is about uh, Chinese companies operating overseas under One Belt, One Road or something like that, I, I, I think that the presumption is that they are complying with the, the uh, local, the, yeah. the host country requirements. If I did not understand your question correctly, maybe we could talk afterward. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's right. not a lot, obviously there's not a lot of direct wholly owned investment in the energy sector by foreign companies. Yeah. Right. Uh, but uh, clearly there are standards and the government is increasing. As I mentioned, there's a new, new law that's going to increase pollution taxes and things like that. I think in, internationally, uh, one of the things that we were tried to encourage, I mean, we had tried to encourage programs with the World Bank and Asian Development Bank and the African Development Bank with the Chinese so that they would apply international environmental standards mm -hmm. to a lot of these large infrastructure programs. Well, I'd like to thank the Atlantic Council and all our speakers for, I think, a very dynamic and interactive session.